As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Hello, Joe. Seb Stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe. Very exciting day today, gang. Very exciting day because we're game relevant, of course, and we're going to be talking about uh, broad themes from three different games. The first, Arsenal Man City. The second, Liverpool Everton. And uh, the third, Southampton Chelsea. Sorry, Saints fans, we're not talking about you. Just uh, just a few bits on Chelsea there today. Also, I should say that if you like the relevance of games and you want to read more about them in a more reading way, then you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO for full access to The Athletic's range of wonderful things that you can enjoy. And at the moment, there is a special deal, I believe. I believe the deal is 50% off. So that equates to about 2 per month or 8p a day, gang. Pretty sure it expires fairly soon. It was a cha- based around the sort of Champions League, so I imagine... You ain't got long left, friends. You probably only got this week to uh, to avail yourselves of that eight peer day at the Athletic. Uh, if you haven't tried it out before, please, please do. You won't be disappointed. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it greatly. Uh, so that's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. One more thing to look out for, released uh, this week, I believe, might be out now, is uh, the Beyond the Headline podcast has done a special episode on Justin Fashionu. Uh, Adam Crafton also wrote and released a, a piece on, on the Athletic about Justin Fashionu's uh, fair to say, incredible and weird story, um, and it is uh, very much worth uh, reading and and listening to. So search for Beyond the Headline and uh, enjoy listening to that. Uh, now, uh, Seb, do you think I've done a good trail for today's episode? Yeah, I feel like you might have alienated a couple of Southampton fans, but I feel that you've well, that's okay with me. the rest quite nicely. We, we, I've been trying to alienate thorough. one Southampton fan for a very long time, and he just he just it's, won't it go away. On more so tightly. Yeah, I feel like therefore I have a different view of what Southampton fans that can put up with, and I think they must be some of the most uh, resilient and really tenacious uh, people uh, in the world. Is that right, Alex? Uh, yeah. Okay.
Okay, okay. Let's begin uh, with some broad themes that came out of the Arsenal-Manchester City game. Arsenal nil, one Manchester City. Yeah, weird game. This is my, my main thing that I want to say about this. It was a weird game. Um, Alex, we were chatting during the game, and uh, at that time you said to me, hey, the tactics are easy, but the ebb and flow is baffling. <laughs> Can you expand <laughs> on that, please? Uh, yes. By easy, what I don't mean is easy to enact. Um, sure, that's sure. not to take away anything from the complexity of the setup. Um, what I mean is that if you watch the game, you could see quite clearly what both teams were trying to do. Uh, and yet, ordinarily, if that's the case, you can also feel the dynamic of the game. You can you can feel the ebb and flow, who's on top and why. Obviously, City were uh, rampant in the first 20 minutes. Arsenal barely got a touch of the ball. And yet, after that point, it felt quite almost stilted. It was like uh, City were controlling possession. Arsenal got back into it increasingly. But it lacked the thrust and the dynamism of the first 20 minutes. The teams were still doing the same sort of stuff. But I, and I, I suppose the answer to what you're saying is I don't really understand it. Like no, that's it wasn't, fine. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like there was a massive tactical change that meant you know. Oh, okay. Well, that's why they've suddenly got back into it. Um, it just it was gradual as well. Like w w when I was watching it, I sort of I didn't notice until the end of the first half when Arsenal suddenly had five minutes of of you know not huge opportunities but some uh, opportunities on goal. And then it felt very much like I'd aged 20 years and I was still doing the same thing. And then suddenly I had this moment of realisation where I thought, oh, wow, I'm 50 years old and my punk band hasn't taken off. It sort of, it came all uh, a, a creeping, didn't it? Yeah, and, and I think, I think that, you know, the way that Man City started, um, obviously with this very, very kind of fluid, flexible formation where De Bruyne was nominally a centre-forward out of possession but was roaming all over the place, the... The two central midfielders, Bernardo Silva and, and Gundogan, were pushing up beyond, beyond that line. You know, there was this kind of wonderful rotation, everybody gliding into position and doing all of this stuff, and it felt really exciting. And obviously they got the goal very, very early. And then they continued to do that, and Arsenal didn't really change a great deal, and all of the energy drained out of the game. And... And there wasn't a discernible reason for why that happened. I, maybe just everyone got tired. I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe. But it was can strange. we say perhaps that the opening goal was was the big error? Maybe Arsenal players just weren't concentrating yet, or it was, I mean, it was two minutes in, and there'd already been a chance before that within the game. So it felt a little bit like uh, they were being, you know, shaken awake. Is it possible that both managers' game plans were actually very good? They were, you know, they were likely to nullify each other. Um, the, because there was a goal so early, Pep Guardiola felt that he didn't really need to do anything with his team because they were they already had the advantage, and that Arsenal's uh, Arsenal's game plan to nullify City was actually working. It just failed within the first two minutes, and then they didn't change it. Yeah, well, there's definitely a couple of individual errors for that goal. I mean, Tierney lets Mares turn in far too easily, um, and between them, Bayern and holding should have stopped Sterling's jump somehow. That's that's definitely the case. But what felt odd was that, particularly for sort of the first half an hour, City continued to be really dominant. And 
and and it felt like that advantage should have been forced forwards. I don't know whether it's the absence of a centre forward to act as a focal point, but the runners were doing well and they were getting into dangerous positions. And also, if you look at how Arsenal set up, it wasn't like it was filling me with a huge amount of confidence. I mean, the centre-backs, one of the centre-backs was often pushing up quite high out of possession to try and close down a City player, and that left huge gaps in behind. The midfield double pivot seemed to be too split apart quite often, with Elneny going quite wide to the right-hand side and Xhaka not tucking across. So I wasn't looking at Arsenal's setup and thinking, oh, they've got... You know, it wasn't like watching an Atletico Madrid 4-4-2 and you think, yeah, you can see very clearly why no one's going to break this down. It just, for whatever reason, it never quite clicked into the next level that the game promised. And even when Arsenal came back into it, they didn't come back into it in a way that felt like they convincingly had an opportunity to score. Yeah, it was just okay. a strange game. <laughs> I'd be, yeah, it was strange. I'd be curious to talk a little bit more about De Bruyne because uh, you mentioned the uh, City's lack of uh, of, a, of a, a real focal point into in the centre forward position. You're absolutely right. City did continue to dominate for that 15, 20 minutes afterwards. I don't remember a huge number of very clear-cut chances, though. And I think watching the game, what was interesting uh, for me was to see how often there was nobody in the Arsenal box. Uh, and uh, City players had the ball in and around the 18-yard box, or a little, little behind that. I remember watching and thinking, well, I wonder what Guardiola's plan here is. I watch City assuming that what they're doing is always on purpose, and I just don't understand why it doesn't make sense. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, the, the broadcasters had De Bruyne in the sort of number nine in the formation. We assume, you know, they meant the false nine. But, I mean, he was literally everywhere on the pitch. <laughs> in the first 20 minutes, he spent a lot of time behind Mares, like right on the right wing, uh, which is where we would normally see him playing in that free eight role. Uh, and there really was no, but, I mean, you know, Sterling, it's, 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 almost, um, it's almost funny that the goal came from a cross and a header from Sterling because it, it felt like there were very few other moves that materialised in that game from City that looked even at all similar to that. Um, talk to me about De Bruyne's positioning. I appreciate that uh, you know that I think Aguero is unavailable, right? But they did have Gabriel Jesus on on the bench. What's the benefit of starting with De Bruyne in that nine if you're going to have, a, you know, essentially an evacuated box for most of the game? I think the point is is to have runners making runs into the box, either like Sterling from left to right, cutting inside, which he did for the goal, and he did do a couple of other times. Uh, or to have um, Gundogan or Bernardo Silva bursting beyond that line um, and getting into the box with late runs, which, I mean, City's City's intention, it seems to me, and I think you're right to assume that Guardiola is, is doing something deliberate and there's a good reason for it, is to create that space in the box by pulling players forwards or uh, having players pulled out to wide positions uh, to, to try and shut the wingers down, but then to have players making late runs in there. If you don't have a focal point, then any player can get forwards and get into that box, and that's how Gundogan scored quite a lot of goals recently. Um, yeah. And there were players making those runs, possibly not quite as much as they could have done, and it was interesting that Elneny spent quite a lot of time marking whoever that late runner was going to be uh, and sort of blocking them off. And that was quite effective. I, I think you could see why Arteta had picked that double pivot over perhaps more of a ball-retaining one. Um, yeah. 
but you know de bruyne's roaming around is precisely to sort of be the one who then picks the i mean it was interesting you you get moments where city had four forwards in the back line sorry in the forward line um you know running ahead and then de bruyne was dropping off behind them to be the kind of passing option there and it was working it was just that for whatever reason you know that the run didn't quite come off the pass didn't quite come off um, but the gaps yeah. were definitely appearing. They just didn't take advantage of them as perhaps they might have done. The, another person I'd like to mention uh, today from the City team is Fernandinho because he showed, I think, during this game that he's definitely still got it despite having been second pick to, to Rodri for most of the season so far. There was this wonderful moment when uh, Bakayo Saka tried to topple him off the ball and uh, I remember thinking, do you not know who that is? <laughs> because that's... <laughs> That's Fernandinho. You can't just push Fernandinho off the ball. I know he looks, you know, slight and small because uh, for a defensive midfielder, he sort of he sort of is in that slightly odd build, isn't he? He's certainly not uh, big and lumbering. But he had a very, very good game. He nullified the vast majority of uh, Arsenal's attacks. I, I remember watching him and just um, just feeling the sort of that safe old familiarity of last season, right? That's absolutely right, and and I think the the, the triangle of the, the sort of central triangle of him, Ruben Diaz, and John Stones was the reason that Arsenal's attacks amounted to nothing. And I think having Fernandinho back in that central role with the energy, the positional ability, the tactical fouling as well, which is something we did a video on ages and ages ago. But yeah, yeah. he reads the game so well and cuts off those opportunities at source sometimes with fouls, but in a sufficiently high position that he's not always going to get booked for them and it doesn't look too cynical. Um, it just allowed the the flexibility of the five players in front of him. And also, you know, he was he was assisted by Zinchenko and Cancelo tucking inside. Cancelo mostly had a very good game in that role. Um, but it, it looked... It, it kind of felt a little bit like the city of a couple of seasons back when they were racking up the points because Fernandinho's position just allows everybody else ahead of him to be fluid to interchange and to have that security blanket behind I thought he was outstanding that you mentioned uh, DS as well there and there was another there was one other moment in the game that felt kind of emblematic of the season or at least emblematic of the two teams standings over the last uh, few years and that was when John Stones kind of eased uh, Aubameyang off the ball the ball had already basically gone out, but uh, towards the end of the game and just gave him a, a quite a big shoulder barge <laughs> and he went flying <laughs> yes. off the pitch. I remember thinking like, okay, yeah, fair enough. I mean, you can, you can, nev you can never be sure that Aubameyang has lost control of the ball. He's a very talented player, so maybe he would have brought it back in. It looked like it had already gone out uh, and perhaps that was unnecessary. Certainly the, uh, the power with which it was done was probably a little unnecessary, but it, it wasn't a foul and uh you know it felt very much uh like i don't know some kind of uh some kind of statement i i'd i'd, I'd hesitate to try to put that into words but do you know what i'm saying well it was quite late in the game wasn't it and it, but it felt like a sort of marker that you put down early on to say yeah. you're not going to get past me i'm physically in charge of this area Whereas at the end, even if even if there's only like, ten minutes to fuck go, you, right? boom. I mean, basically, and and I think, you know, the, the way that 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 city centre back pairing was was protected by the players in front meant they could be quite kind of imperious with the way yeah, they did yeah. stuff. Obviously, it was Ruben Diaz's crossfield ball to Mares that set off the attack that 
that um, led to the goal. But the two of them just, they seem to grow in, or not grow in confidence during the game, but they seem to have grown in confidence enormously across the course of the season. Um, Stones, I think, now looks nailed on to start for England at centre-back, which makes a lot of sense. Do you think maybe they just understand each other? Because, like, Laporta is, like, arguably, technically a better defender than both of them, right? But at the moment, they are the first-choice partnership. They appear to play the best together. Do you you think there's maybe a chance that Ruben Diaz arrives and he and John Stones just kind of click and get on from day one? Uh, I think think there's a really interesting point there because I mean obviously we don't know because we're we're not there but the the that sense of chemistry between certain um sort of groups of players like uh, there's there's research that's been done in rugby with international teams and, and rugby obviously has certain kind of positional groupings like the back row the second row the 9-10 pairing and if the players in those positions in an international team play together at club level they perform better the more of those connections there are the better the team does. And I think it's it's very difficult to put a value on, but it's also hugely important that the the physical chemistry between two players, particularly in, say, the centre-back positions, it would not surprise me if that was part of the reason. I mean, I also think that the, the, the greater protection afforded to them has mitigated Stones' occasional weaknesses. You know, he, he can carry the ball forwards and he knows very well that someone's going to tuck, usually Cancelo's going to tuck back in and Cancelo is a big guy for a fullback so you don't lose much out physically in in that regard he seems less I guess City's centre-backs are much less exposed this season than they were last season you know there's a, there's a tighter structure around them, that plays to their strengths and they've been able to develop and work on their partnership without worrying quite so much about the fact that there's a massive gap in front of them. And I think Fernandinho returning will only improve that. They like to be swaddled, don't they, centre-backs? Wrapped up all tight like, uh, you know, one baby <laughs> yeah, they're two just, large men. They're just soft now, aren't they, compared to like a Martin yes. Keown or a Tony Adams. Absolutely. Those were proper defenders, uh, etc., well, etc. Speaking of proper defenders, Arsenal didn't start Gabriel and Louise. And hey, that sounds like I'm doing a dig at uh, Pablo Mari and uh, and uh, Rob Holding. I'm not. I'm just trying to find a nice segue. They didn't start. Um, I, I, I asked uh, uh, one of my friends about this. He was saying he thought they were just being rested. Uh, I, I was curious if there was a tactical reason because it felt like Arteta made qu- quite a few changes ahead of uh, today's game. Was there a tactical reason, Alex, or was it just rotation? Because, I mean, they've got the, you know, they played on Thursday. They're going to play on Thursday again this week. There's a lot of games coming up for them in a short space of time. Yeah, I, I suspect that it is rotation. And, and the reason for that is that I think, from a physical perspective, Gabriel is probably their best defender. Um, I think Holding and Luis, there's not quite as much to choose between them. Personally, I would have expected Luis to be there because particularly on the flanks Arsenal were obviously going for quite a lot of pace with Pepe and Saka uh, and then even after the change when Aubameyang went left and Lacazette came on so Luiz's ability to play crossfield passes uh, probably would have been quite helpful in that regard as Arsenal didn't really get much time on the ball and I can't have expected that they would have thought they were going to having said that I thought Holding did pretty well the the mistake for the goal aside um Mary, I'm 
kind of still unconvinced by and and as I said before you know the positioning of the two of them they did they did drift forwards quite a lot they did allow gaps in behind Uh, I think if if City had been slightly more um, clinical they could have been picked off but but you know it was an odd one I I think Gabriel's been their best centre-back this season and Luisa's passing is is the best range so rotation has got to be part of it but then you wonder does that kind of indicate that either Arteta has real confidence in the reserve players because they're playing Man City yeah. or Arteta's thinking we're almost certainly not going to win this <laughs> so, so maybe we should just target yeah. the Benfica game instead it's very difficult to know the messaging is slightly strange hey uh, Rob Holding uh, did come off eventually for uh, David Luiz but in a concussion sub I'm not sure I've seen one of those in the league yeah a little green piece of paper was it green or was it pink something like that it was green and also I believe the uh, the fourth uh, uh, fourth assistant uh, whatever the name of that referee on the side you know the one who just gets shouted at by the managers the whole time yeah the fourth official uh, the fourth official, he had to go and uh, show the green paper to both of the managers. And I remember <laughs> there was one moment on the broadcast when he was showing it to I just assumed this person was a member of City's coaching staff. I'd never seen them before. And he, he just looked very perplexed. <laughs> he said, what are you showing me? Why are you showing me this green paper? Uh, it was a concussion sub. Hey, we've got a video out today on, um, on football's dementia problem as well. So if you ha- haven't seen that, check it out. It's horrible. Uh, sticking with Arsenal, um, let's talk about Hector Bellerin because he's not been great for a while now. Um, it's you know perhaps surprising that he's still starting. I mean, we were chatting about this over the weekend. Producer Adonis commented that he thinks that, you know it's it's a bit mad that Maitland Niles couldn't displace him and instead went out on loan. Uh, Seb, given that this isn't game relevant, this question and that you missed yesterday's game, I'm going to bring this to you now. Talk to me about Hector Bellerin a little bit because he was. He was always supposed to be the next big thing. For a long time, he was the next big thing. Uh, he had a, a horrible injury, and uh, it just it doesn't seem like he's the next big thing anymore. In fact, it seems like he was the last next big thing. Yeah, and really horrible injury. He had a ruptured ligament, which cost him, I think, about seven or eight months of a season. And I think it's just sad, Joe, because he looks like a a broken player almost. I think one of the, the early associations with uninjured, unhurt, um, non-fragile Hector Bellerin was his pace and his dynamism. He was just a very aggressive attacking player. And now all of that kind of urgency seems to have been stripped away. And and it's funny, actually, isn't it? Because it's almost that injury occurred at a time when his status was picking up and people were starting to take an interest in him as a spokesman, but a a figurehead for a particular way of thinking about um, fashion and culture. Uh, because he's got he's an interesting guy and he's an intelligent guy and he's got a lot of um a lot of things to say which are worth listening to and it's almost as if because of that rising profile the decline in his playing career has gone a little bit unnoticed and so now when we when we talk about it it feels as if it's snuck up on us is that fair i don't know i think so alex what do you think well we when we did arsenal sensible transfers video uh in january that that position was one that I identified as being a weak area. Um, you know, Bayern simply doesn't contribute enough in an attacking perspective uh, to be worth his defensive frailties. Um, you know, the number of duels he wins is really pretty low, and he's he's kind of comparable to what you'd expect from a very attacking wing back, but without the attacking output. Yeah. Um, and I guess and lots of yellow cards. 
Lots of yellow cards, uh, an inability to take throw-ins, which continues to be baffling. Um, but I, I think I think there's two issues. Firstly, Arsenal don't have somebody else in that position. Um, that's a kind of a natural... I mean, yes, Maitland-Niles is a good player and I thought actually did well for, for West Brom in the game against Burnley. Really nice kind of snappy midfield performance. Um, but he, you know, he's a versatile player, isn't he? He's not. He's not definitively a right back. He can Maybe play he didn't all over want to play at right back either. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I will take your word for that. No, uh, no. I just mean like, let's say you're a young player. You've got you're at your parent club. You've got two options. If you stay there, you can maybe play a bit more at right back, or if you go somewhere else, you can play in midfield. I mean, I, I think if the opportunity to start in midfield is there, yes, that, yeah, that, I yeah. guess that makes sense. But. You know, without a natural person who's kind of pressing and, and looking to displace somebody there um, in that position. And also with what Seb says, you know, Bayern amongst the fan base is incredibly popular. He's a an articulate, thoughtful, progressive individual. He's um, a cool guy. He's a cool guy. You know, he does a lot of cool stuff. And, and I think that there is an affection and an esteem uh, around... Arsenal for him in terms of the fan base I assume that extends to the, the, the playing staff as well and so maybe he gets a bit more latitude there um, but it's it's impossible to know I mean you know he does he does still have good performances I just don't think he's a consistently top level right back and given how important fullbacks are to the way a lot of modern teams attack and given the impact that, that Tierney has on the left when he's playing well. I mean, Tierney, basically everything that Arsenal did well against Man City came through Tierney. Um, yeah. You know, if they had that ability on the right-hand side as well, it would make a difference. He's also a stalwart, I suppose, but it's been there for a long time. Um, anyway, I like his face and the way he handles his business. I like it. Um, so I, I like his accent. His accent is yeah, fascinating sure. to me. It's kind of he sounds a lot like uh, I heard Emmy Martinez, the Aston Villa goalkeeper, talk for the first time the other day, and they found very they sound very similar. And it's not like their accent isn't like a blend of uh, of different cultures and different languages. It's like one part of a sentence is from North London, and another is from some yeah somewhere else. I went out with a girl once whose family were Uruguayan, but she had spent most of her time growing up in Sweden, and then she moved to London when she was 15. And uh, she had this sort of strange international Cockney accent. <laughs> and it was very fun. <laughs> anyway, uh, Seb, City, 10-point um, lead. Is it over now? Game over. Big yeah, it's, it yeah. is game over, isn't it? Which is funny because it felt like only four weeks ago that we were saying, "What? Who's gonna? Who? What? Hello!" And now, oh fuck yeah, forgot about that. When the, when the two closest followers are Leicester and Man United, yeah. you feel like both those teams have losses left in them in a way that City just don't, right? And Liverpool are currently in sixth place, so there, there, there goes that bang. I also feel like, and it's something we've already covered, but when that Stones Diaz partnership um, revealed itself and started to grow. The kind of the last straw to clutch at disappeared um, because City's attacking strength is what it is, and you know there's a little bit of an issue in midfield, which um, was was exacerbated by Fernandinho periodically having to be dropped back in. Soon as they fix that area, there's something quite inevitable about what followed. I think. Yeah, I really like how you said exacerbated. 
Hey, I'm a cosmopolitan man. I, I live in Europe now. It's okay. Stones and Diaz have got 11 clean sheets in the 13 games they started together, which is just formidable, isn't it? Hot diggity dog. Well, let's cross the country now to discuss a, a derby uh, that happened on the Merseyside. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, here we are in Merseyside. It's Liverpool nil to Everton. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, let's start with Liverpool. Uh, all the records related to this game, yada yada, there were plenty of them. Uh, Liverpool now outside the European places, yet to win a game, a league game, I should say, yet to win a league game in February. Uh, Jordan Henderson also added to the injury list. Seb, it's all gone horribly, horribly wrong. Horribly, horribly, horribly wrong, Joe, but also not entirely unpredictable because I, I feel like this is now a, a trend with Liverpool. And actually... I've heard from a, a few Everton fans in the aftermath of this game uh, where I've been sort of watching their interactions on social media. And there's been a little bit of umbrage in the way that the media is focused on Liverpool and focused on Jurgen Klopp's body language and press conference demeanour. But it felt unsurprising, which is a really strange thing to say about a result which nobody has seen since 1999. It just, all the... All the, all the elements that made up that game, so Liverpool's domination of certain areas of the pitch, but inability to create chances when it really mattered. Um, this is something we've seen before. The fragility at the back was something we're pretty familiar with too. Also, their inability to deal with a particular type of direct attacking player, i.e. Richarlison, not a new thing, of course. It's really strange to see a team who have knocked down every obstacle in their path for the last three or four years fail repeatedly to clamber over the same one week after week. It's a very, very strange place to be. Well, I'll tell you what, let's start then by talking about um, Richarlison for Everton uh, and his performance because, uh, uh, ironically, it was the kind of knifing inside forward that Liverpool seemed to lack, Seb. That's a nice little bit of writing there. Yeah, thanks. I was very (laughs) proud of when I wrote that down in my notes, not you. The best description I've heard of Liverpool's defence at the moment is that it's basically there's no chemistry there at all it's just four individual players or sometimes three and I think when you have someone like Richarlison who is very direct who's skillful who does things quickly I think that's the ultimate nightmare for a for a group which aren't cohesive and I know it's a, a little bit after the fact to be saying this but when Richarlison scored that first goal if you were before that game kicked off if you were to imagine a goal that Liverpool might concede and the player who yeah. might score it, everything would have looked like that, I think. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That makes sense. Um, 
Sorry, I wasn't expecting you to finish so soon. I wasn't actually prepared for my next question. Uh, but now I am. Uh, and it goes like this. Alex, moving on swiftly from Seb's abrupt ending there, let's talk about Michael Keane. Because, you know, Michael Keane was a bit of a standing joke a year or so ago. But now he's the centrepiece of Ancelotti's defence. Alongside, it's worth mentioning, uh, Mason Holgate, who in particular was fantastic against Liverpool, and also Godfrey. Uh, you know, they both have they both had brilliant games. Um, they look super assured as a unit with Keane as the marshal. Talk to me about that because uh, that is that is a prized asset. Yeah, when, when Everton had this good start to the season, I remember Paddy Boyland at The Athletic highlighting just how important Keane was to that. And I think he's... Um, He's always been a slightly divisive player. I personally think in large part because of his performances for England, um, where, you know, England, I think in 2019, conceded most of their goals through individual errors, about half of which were by Michael Keane. Um, <laughs> and and that, you know, that sort of, you know, giving the ball... This, this is when Southgate was trying to develop the playing out from the back style and and Michael Keane in particular seemed to take that as meaning give the opposition the ball within about 20 yards of goal and then backpedal frantically. But as time has gone on, he has become a lot more assured. I mean, Ancelotti's set up in this game with having, you know, Seamus Coleman and and Dean effectively as wing backs, but, but able to tilt into more of a back four uh, when out of possession sometimes it afforded Everton's unit a lot more cover um, I also think it's worth pointing out and I'm pretty sure someone said this in, in the WhatsApp as well it's the best game from Pickford I've seen in ages um, which which again helped um, but Keane I that. think oh massively yeah particularly, uh, particularly because the narrative around this game exactly is this. just yeah which is like I know, and listen, I don't want to take this away from Liverpool fans at all. Obviously, injury luck this season has been woeful. And I, nobody uh, who remembers this season is, is going to f- forget that, you know. However, uh, the sort of constant reference of that challenge is kind of grating after a while. And uh, I think it was very important, you know, psychologically for uh, Jordan Pickford to have a good game so as to sort of shoo away some of those ghosts, you know. Oh, for sure. Um, but I think yeah, to return to to Keane, he he seems to have taken on more of a sort of leadership mantle. I think you know the the, the players that he's playing with, whether it's Holgate or Godfrey or even Yerry Mina, uh, they are younger, they're less experienced, and I think having that sense of I'm the person who has to sort out this line, I'm the person who has to organise things, has been really beneficial for Keane. Um, I think, again, the back line got a lot more protection. I thought Tom Davis was absolutely superb in this game. Um, running around, making tackles, breaking up play, kind of being a bit of a dick sometimes, um, but in that way that is very, very useful in a defensive midfielder. And it just gave them all a lot more confidence. And I think as you know, as the season has progressed, Keane has got better and better um, and, and looks very much more assured. He doesn't look like he's got the same kind of mistake in him now. I can't believe Michael Keane is 28 years old. That's he's ridiculous. now going to go and make a massive mistake in his next game because that's what happens <laughs> yeah. whenever we talk somebody up. But yeah, I, th- I remember him as like a youth player. I remember, I remember thinking Will Keane was going to be better. You know, fucking idiot. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, Seb, I'm going to ask you now about Mason Holgate because, you know, Mason Holgate 
more like Mason hold the phone. This guy's great gate. Yeah. Sorry, I, w I was temporarily stunned by finding out that Tom Davis is still only 22. It feels like he must have made his Premier League debut at 13. It's been around forever <laughs> now. Uh, I really... Maybe know, he stole it... some of Michael Keane's youth. <laughs> because that and, would explain yeah, why yeah. they're in the opposite directions than what I expect them to be. You know, he did a bit of life-sucking. You should know about it very well, Seb. You do it to me on a daily basis. <laughs> Mason Holgate. Let's do Mason Holgate. Mason Holgate. Mason Holgate I like because it feels like for a long time he was caught between managers who either wanted him to, well, let's face it, not be on the pitch or to play between um, fullback and centre-half. And as a result, he kind of, he didn't really evolve definitively in either direction. Um, had a mistake in his game. But it feels like um, this version of him has has kind of captured all the good parts of his skill set. So what is Mason Holgate? Like, good footballer, first and foremost. A really nice fit on the right side of a defence. Um, He's feisty. He is feisty. And I... We, we talked about Tom Davis and Holgate fits into that category too because sometimes when, when Everton have gone to, to Anfield or even just played in any kind of most side derby like after the kind of the Tim Cahill, Duncan Ferguson era, they've lacked a few players who've just willing to be a, who have been willing to be a pain, who have been willing to, to challenge Liverpool because I, I think this generation particularly, if you think of, for instance, Andy Robertson's most petulant moments where... He gets away with a few naughty things during games. Everton don't really have those players or haven't. And I always think back to that FA Cup game where they lost to um, the Curtis Jones goal when Liverpool fielded a side with an average age of, uh, age of about 14 and a half and they just got <laughs> brushed aside. Like that, like Everton have been working at a talent deficit for a while, yes. But they've also been without, they've also had a, like a natural inferiority and a sort of a, a fear to them in this fixture. And Holgate and Davis, they're, they're important parts of the response to that, I think. Um, and it's almost as important as anything they bring with the ball at their feet. No, I like it. I like that guy's attitude. I think he, he, he just looks well up for it all the time. And uh, that's the kind of... That's why I like can we, um, I think Can we another... give a little mention to Ben Godfrey as well? Because I thought he yeah, was very yeah, good. Absolutely. Um, I, I really like Ex him. Ex-Norwich legend, of course. Yes, well, indeed. I was, was going to say that, that, that this kind of back three-ish setup. When you've got Godfrey and Holgate on the sides of that back three, they both have played as fullbacks as well. And so you have two players who are perfectly capable of centre backs, and, and Godfrey also uh, played as a defensive midfielder when he was on loan. So you've got players that are versatile who understand both elements of defending wide areas, either as a centre back or as a fullback. And I think that gives a back three an additional versatility and additional uh, ability to cover those wide areas if the fullbacks are, or wingbacks are caught out of position. It makes a lot of sense to use players like that in those positions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, the last Everton player I would like to mention is uh, is the one mentioned least, I imagine. Dominic Calvert-Lewin uh, came back super quickly from injury. He replaced Rodriguez in this game, which I think is one of those... Again, I know I'm referencing moments a lot in today's podcast, but it felt like a, an important moment because, of course, James Rodriguez is James Rodriguez, an international global star, uh, all of the skills in the world, played at Real Madrid, played at Bayern Munich. Here he is in a game, you know, 1-0 up. It's pretty much on a knife edge at this point too, uh, and he's being taken off the pitch and replaced by Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And you think, actually, 
that's a good thing. You know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, he's going to make an impact on this game. And so he did. He made life very difficult for Liverpool when he came on. And he, you know, he played his part in the in the goal too. It feels like, given his form this season, it's going to be weird to just see him riding the bench for England at the Euros, Seb. It really does. And, you know, you'd like to think that a, a creative mind somewhere at the FA would be able to come up with a way of using him in an efficient way. Because Yeah, because, I mean, Harry, Harry Kane started the season very well, uh, un- undoubtedly, undeniably, and he's probably going to end as, you know, golden boot or whatever. But it's hard to say that his form in the last two or three months has been exceptional. Also, if you're if you're forward thinking and you accept that without Harry Kane, Tottenham don't really exist, and there is no such thing as Jose Mourinho Spurs without Kane and and Son and that partnership, I, th- I think um, can you really imagine Kane actually turning up at the Euros fresh? He's going to have to play at every point now because Spurs is Spurs' season is um, I mean it's almost to the point of being irretrievable. Uh, and so, what you're saying is, don't take him to the year. I think <laughs> leave I him think alone. That's... Let him. Let him. Mm. Let him. Let him have a, a summer's golfing on the Algarve or something. Let like him that. rest. And just, he, the World Cup's coming rest. up. You know. Hey Joe, you know what? You know what's? You know what's really, really interesting about Cavalier is when you take him out of the Everton side, you're left with something very similar to the situation at Spurs with Kane. So I, I uh, if you compare this game with Everton's defeat at Goodison to Fulham, where there was no Calvert Lewin and where all the forward moves, all the attacking moves kind of died very easily. And, you know, they, they, they played in a kind of, um, they played in flares rather than in moves, if that makes sense. And it did just go to show how complete a player he is. And then when he came on at Anfield and when he came on against the team, against the defence who had already lost Jordan Henson, who were patched up and lacking confidence and, you know, had all kinds of imbalances, you saw the difference. He's just, he is a nightmare to play against. What is um, his value, do you think? Because, what, I mean, you know, look, so, well, yeah, because something, and I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I, I, Everton fans are going to hate me for saying this, but I mentioned a couple of weeks ago he seems like the perfect player for Manchester United, as an example, right? The reason I think that is because I think if anything from this season, what's 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 been shown by Manchester United's performances and players is that they don't need Jadon Sancho, they need a replacement for Edinson Cavani at the end of this season, or, or certainly at the end of... The next season, if he stays for another year, they need that that kind of that that focal point, that striker. And Dominic Calvert Lewin seems like the absolute perfect person for that position. Now, again, apologies to Everton fans, but it's just it's something that strikes me as a as a bit of an obvious one in some ways. But what is his value? Do you think uh, enormous? Because if you if you think of him less as a, a part of this team and more as a component within a project, which might have five years to run. And you think about what the likely effect is of surrounding him with better players. So this season... Or what Ancelotti Hamas might Rodriguez, do if they sell him. <laughs> you know, as in he might well, leave. yeah, but I, 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 take, take the Man United aspect out of it because that's a little bit antagonistic. But just, just say he stayed at Everton and they were able to uh, put a couple of additional James Rodriguez's. Is that the right way of pluralizing James Rodriguez? Sure, yeah. James's... Yeah. Many Hamas. Rodriguez is. Rodriguez is. Okay. Many JRs. Many many, I like that. Many JRs. Okay, so if you're able to put many JRs around him, you probably bet on his his game becoming even more rounded and 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 as has been the case throughout his career to this point, you know, he would reveal different parts of himself as a centre forward. And I, I think that's what's really interesting. And so if if that's the likely scenario, his value to 
Everton at the moment is absolutely enormous because he's the centerpiece of everything that he'd be wanting to be doing over the short term. Also, Man United would destroy him, <laughs> like they destroyed. Somehow they would player. find a way. I also, <laughs> I, I, I know, I know this is going to um, be. You can see my. Houses. I don't mean to be antagonistic, there, but you can see why I know you jerk. I say that right because it just it just feels like something that fifteen years ago would have happened. It doesn't feel like something that's going to happen now. But it feels like 15 years ago, that's the sort of thing that, that would have happened. And tactically speaking, there's a there's a there's an option there. Uh, I don't think. I mean, personally, I don't don't think he should leave. I think this Everton team are exciting and fantastic, and presumably they have um, they have some way to grow as well as you, as you're saying, Seb. Yeah, I think so. I also, I don't think it'd be antagonistic. I think this is just the the age old reflex in English football: is young English player plays well, therefore he must move to Manchester United as quickly as possible. I think we're all guilty of it. Um, and that's been the case for so long that it, yeah, it is a reflex. Um, I wonder whether, I wonder whether the biggest argument actually, from a neutral perspective, from staying there, is that you want interesting players who change and develop over time at different clubs. Because I want a reason to watch Everton beyond just Everton are playing another team in what should be a good fixture or a you know competitive match. I want to watch a game in which I'm going to learn something about a player. Like, I, I'm going to see something that I didn't think he could do or I, I'm going to see him score a type of goal or, you know, with a type of finish that he's acquired over the last couple of months or weeks or something. That's really what's interesting. And so if you... Or as I'm only interested in transfers, that's my main... You just, you're, you are, you have that insatiable appetite for transfers and you know, just <laughs> spending money and you just love capitalism that much. I mean, I really you do. down to a T. You really do. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's the end of that conversation, isn't it? O- other than to say, Alex Stewart, England manager, who do you pick? You pick Harry Kane or DCL to start? Ah, uh, I, I. Well, there's two answers to this. The first is it depends on who you're playing. <laughs> one is DCL and one is Harry Kane. Yeah, very good. Um, I, 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 I wonder if there's a way of accommodating. I mean, I, Seb's absolutely right about the physical state Kane is likely to go to the Euros in. Um, I do wonder if there's a way of playing the two of them together with uh, either almost in a 4-4-2 or playing Kane as effectively a number 10 behind Calvert-Lewin. I think the thing that Calvert-Lewin brings is the ability to play against the two main types of defences you're going to come across, which are, you know, if you're playing against ball-playing defenders who want to play out from the back, his pressing and his energy is incredibly useful. If you're playing against a packed deep defense, his ability in the air and his physicality pressing against the defender and pushing back is also really helpful. They'd be so physical, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, and I, I think the the thing with um, with the Calvert Lewin over Kane argument is that you can envisage a situation in which England, say England, go into a four two three one. They could field a front four with so much pace and energy. Uh, that it would be kind of terrifying for most teams to play against. You you know, think of the wide options, people like Rashford, Sancho, Sterling, Foden, even people like James Madison playing in the 10 role. Um, you know, would would Kane slightly slow that down, possibly? Um, but I do feel like, you know, the, the other sensible argument to make about this England team is that they are young and, you know, if Henderson is ruled out, for example, which is being talked about today... Where is the leadership coming from in a young team like that? And and Kane does bring enormous international experience and leadership as the captain. And there is I like there it. Is Play him as the ten. Well, I I 
I I possibly play him as a ten, or I think this England team in a in a sort of very attacking four four two could do something quite exciting. Um, I would probably I would actually consider dropping Trent Alexander Arnold if we did that though, and have oh, a slightly more defensively minded. Dog. What Aaron yeah. Mbappé? I don't know. She maybe is really getting shaken up now. You're 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 <laughs> dropping a Liverpool player to include an Everton player. Well, I I um. Yeah, and I'd, I'd have I'd have Luke Shaw at left back as well. I I don't know. It's I think I think England England are in a position where they've got lots and lots of issues, but they're all good ones. Um, sure. Well, we're going to come on to talk about um, Ben Chilwell. Uh, coincidentally, after after this little break, uh, a quick chat about uh, some Chelsea stuff. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Okay, it's Chelsea. Of course, uh, Chelsea were uh, had a game, didn't they? And the game was Southampton won. Won Chelsea. Um, but we're not going to talk about Southampton today. We've done that a little bit uh, recently. However, here's what we are going to discuss. Callum Hudson-Odoi was subbed as a sub. He was subbed as a sub. Subbed as a sub. I haven't written a jingle for that yet, but you can hear. Subbed as a sub. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Thomas Tuchel said the following. I was not happy with his attitude, energy, and counter-pressing. A new quote. He needs to be trustworthy and reliable, and that is the next step for him. Seb, uh, how did that show? Because you've written here in my notes. I find that quite troubling. Chelsea have played five games in 16 days, and uh, Hudson-Odoi has been a sub in two of them. It's quite bold to single out a player under those conditions, more so to be that damning after the fact. Yeah, I, I just found some of the language a bit troubling. I, it was just really harsh. Attitude, trustworthiness. I also think maybe, I, I think this is a really easy trap to fall into. I think we're all a little bit guilty of forgetting just how weird the world is, the football world is at the moment. Um, and just what a strange situation this is for a lot of players. And I felt like, we we've, we talked about this before when we did our, our big thing on subs being subbed. And I, I think it's, it's kind of more what happens afterwards than the act itself. And in this case, it's a, it's not just being subbed. It's not just that happening on a, you know, marquee television game at a you know, peak time slot. It's also, I don't know, it just, just felt very accusatory. I, I found it strange. Um, I also, I, I think presumably it was instructed by the lack of pressing in Callum Hudson's, Callum Hudson-Odoi's game didn't exert much pressure on um, Southampton's back line when he came on. Fine, okay. 
but I felt a lot of Chelsea players were guilty of that. I don't think this was a very good Chelsea player, Chelsea performance all over the pitch. I thought there were huge issues at the back. I thought the um, the fullbacks were relatively poor. Alonso was good with the ball, but um, as is seemingly typical with him, pretty crap without it. And so if you were going to point a finger as a manager, I felt that there were other places to do that. And this felt like an instance maybe where the subbing a sub dynamic, it's like a, it's a little bit of a way of localizing and isolating your team's issues. Maybe not making a point, but creating a, a talking point, which is apart from your team being a bit shit. Um, it's the Mourinho sub sub. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay. I mean, I suppose I'm trying to think about it from the perspective of Thomas Tuchel and what options he has. I mean, if you think that's genuinely going to impact the game positively, then I suppose it's an understandable substitution to make. However, um, it does mean you're going to be asked directly about it after the game, right? And that's that's obviously what happened here. And there's no option for him to say, well, he was a bit tired and obviously it's not an injury and he's making that point clear too. So you either, yeah, I mean, I guess are you advocating that you kind of say nothing, I suppose, or just sort of be a little more vague? Because it's quite direct, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it would hardly be unprecedented for a manager to, to play a straight bat to that kind of question. Uh, you could What's give a terse bat? answer. You could just say it was tactical or we needed to make another change or you can be intentionally vague and let the kind of the, you know, let the media fill in the, the gaps by themselves, which I, I accept is a prompt to write things which might even be more damaging. I just felt it to be quite bold. I might be being completely unfair. It was just I was just quite taken aback by... No, no, you're uh, using empathy, Seb. Don't don't be confused. Well, he was just What's happening abusive, is like you're it... feeling something for a player <laughs> and you're acting upon that feeling, and that's absolutely fine. We mustn't forget here, and I know we have a lot of close proximity to Alex, so sometimes this gets confusing for us, Seb, but I need you to stay with me as a human being, okay? Because it's important that at least two of us can do that. I mean, feelings like in the TIFO WhatsApp chat, anytime I express a feeling or a sentiment... I feel like I'm heading into kind of a taboo area. Like it's making somebody else in the group feel uncomfortable. Uh, the response so is I, always... I, I, over time, well, yeah, over time it becomes like an aversion. You know, you just, you, you stop doing something, you repress uh, your ability to respond in a compassionate way, way. I've got to read this tweet because it's a very funny, it was a comment, I think, a, a comment, I posted this in the in the TIFO podcast uh uh, WhatsApp chat yesterday because it was somebody left a comment under one of our videos and I'm just scrolling to find it. I'm ever so sorry. Uh, yeah, so this this was a comment left underneath uh, one of our videos from last week by Ranting Swede. Um, and I feel that it just summarised both Alex and Seb, Seb very well. Alex in a way that I have heard summarised uh, several times. Seb in a way that I, it's a slightly more unique. Uh, the comment reads as such, Alex, as the director of sport, has been told he can sign either Haaland or Mbappe to strengthen Spurs after Kane and Son have departed. Alex says, that sounds nice, but I want to look at this tidy midfielder from the Bulgarian Sunday League. At this point in the, in, in the comment, I'm thinking, yeah, sure, sure, listen. We've heard we've heard this before. This is a it's an exaggeration. It's deliberately over exaggerated. That's where the humour comes in. There's a conflict with reality. I, I I understand what's happening. It's not you know it doesn't do anything for me. I get it. I see. I see. But the comment goes on. The comment says Seb says he has some long legs as well. So that would be a great signing. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we've talked about legs before, but it's really truly struck me when I read that comment, how often it is actually that Seb 
Seb actually talks about how long, how long a player's legs are. I don't know why I just remembered that, but it was it's something to do with it. Anyway, Marcus Alonso has seemingly sidelined Ben Chilwell. Hmm. Relatively hmm. long Perplexing. legs on Marcus Alonso. Here we go. Okay, I want, I'm looking for Sherlock Holmes here. Uh, Chelsea spent fifty million pounds or so or more. I can't remember on Ben Chilwell. Uh, the board would presumably be keen to see a play, obviously. It's been uh, quite a lot of money there. And yet, dot, dot, dot. What is the suitability here? Um, I'm going to come to you, Alex. Uh, suitability here to Tuchel's style of football? Why, why is uh, Marcos Alonso, uh, you know, the, the, man, the man who always comes back? Why is he coming back again? I think probably because he's slightly better at holding the ball. Um, he's less dynamic, but that exposes Chelsea lefts on that left-hand side it's a bit more patient it's a bit more possession focused chill world's more about energy and getting forwards i also have a vague sense that chillwell was was probably the one signing of those big signings that were made uh that was a lampard signing lampard really was keen on uh chillwell not necessarily that he wasn't keen on the other ones but i i just wonder whether there's a slight kind of sense of of him having fitted more into that style than than what Tuchel wants to do, and Tuchel wants a slightly more, uh, I don't want to say thoughtful player, but you know, Chilwell's about energy and getting forwards, and Alonso is a bit more patient and circumspect with the ball. Uh, Seb, go. Is Marcus Alonso the most overachieving footballer ever? I, I, I if you look at what he is and the way he moves around a pitch and his flaws. And yet somehow he survives at Chelsea <laughs> and he does quite well. Like he, his statistics are, are fairly positive. He's always had a, a pretty decent tangible output. And like, you just, you can never fully escape the idea that, oh mate, you, you should probably still be playing for, I don't know. Uh, you know, you, 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 he's a kind of, he's a kind of player that would show up in late January to a club threatened by relegation. And yet somehow, every time Chelsea make a managerial change, back he comes. He would survive the apocalypse, Marcus Alonso. He just, he just, <laughs> he's like so a resistant. cockroach. <laughs> It'd be like bacteria, um, some types of fish, possibly a bit of plant life, and Marcus Alonso <laughs> juggling a football whilst, you know, nuclear winter is setting in. It's, it's extraordinary. He, he is a player about whom I can say almost nothing because... He he never really stands out to me in any conceivable way. Like there's not, it's very difficult to look at Marcus Alonso and go, oh, that's what you're bringing. I I don't know. It, it's it is an odd one. And also, managers seem to either really really like him and remain completely loyal to him, or absolutely hate him and bin him off at the first opportunity. Lampard, obviously, you know, a charter member of the latter category. But it's just strange that it's. Because uh, I, I don't think Ben Chilwell is the world's best fullback, and I don't think he's even necessarily, um, I don't think he's even necessarily in the top three for English fullbacks at the moment. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's just it's almost like a reflex, isn't it? Like, oh, I'm a new manager at Stamford Bridge, and things got to get better. Right, get Marcus Alonso on the side right away. And you just think that's a that's a that's a natural response with a kind of I don't know a, a Diego Costa or 
uh, when Tim Sherwood did it with Emmanuel Adebayor. Because it's like, okay, you know, he's the guy that's sort of been jilted and has a point to prove, fine. But then Marcus Alonso comes back in and just does all the same things that he was doing two years ago. And he sort of trundles down the wing and, you know, scores nice goals, good, good technique, good finisher. You know, throws in the odd defensive calamity. Honestly, it's 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 baffling. And yet, on he goes, on he goes. It seems like it's a you know almost a bad idea to just repeatedly hire new managers and spend lots of money for each of them. <laughs> different different thoughts about what they want to do. I remember being in one of Maurizio Sarri's first press conferences at Stamford Bridge. It must have been like the autumn of whenever he first arrived, and he said something like, "Marcus Alonso is the best fullback in Europe." And I somebody actually that. laughed. Yeah, but some, somebody in the press conference laughed. And you, you know, um, you know when you remember when you were at school and something would happen, and one person in the room would laugh uncontrollably, and because they were embarrassed about it, just kept laughing, and they were unable to to kind of suppress it, and it just became funnier and funnier and funnier. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, you know, it, it'd be the person laughing at the innuendo uh, or the, the inadvertent sex joke, and it was it was like that. I can't remember who it was. I, it was somebody I didn't recognise, but um, someone just started giggling and just, it was really awkward, just wouldn't stop giggling. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, we've come sort of to the end of the podcast now, uh, but uh, one one more thing to cover is Joe's Lists and Player Quotes Facts. It's Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. There we go. Uh, we've only got time for one today because, again, I forgot that I do this because I don't keep it in my head as a thing that's important because, you know, just leaving you a little blank spot You made such there, a but... fuss about including this, though, though, didn't you? You, so know, it's on, you, you know it's on the plan every time. You actually I mean, wanted me to put it on there I, when it wasn't? I wrote, you wrote this it? plan, so yeah. I didn't put it on because I forgot that this was a thing. But, no, the players, Joe's and Facts quotes... And uh, today we've got time for one that I just researched. If you're if you're listening to this and thinking, "Huh, Joe didn't moderate that conversation about Alonso quite as well as he normally would do. He didn't stop Alex and Seb when they grew boring, and he let them continue for <laughs> two or three minutes longer than than he would normally have done." And I don't know why I'm disappointed about that. And I think I wish he had moderated it in his normal fashion. Well, listener, I'll let you in on a little inside secret. I I didn't moderate it because I needed them to fail because I was looking for one. Ben Chilwell, uh, player quotes and facts list. Ben Chilwell, position left back, of course. Fact, fact. He went to Redbourne Upper School. Now, the reason that that is an interesting fact, only for me and not for anyone else, is because... I lived in a place called Flitwick for a while uh, as a as a child, which is uh, in Bedfordshire, right? And the the secondary school that I would have gone to, that my sister Alice, who works for for Tifo, went to for one year before we moved again, was Redbourne Upper School. So there you go. It's a small world, isn't it? Isn't it a very very small small world, Redbourne? And uh, also Ben Chilwell's quote uh, accompanying uh, two pictures of him in the snow uh, at, I assume, Stamford Bridge. Uh, Ben Chilwell's quote on Twitter says, chilly outside today, you know? And I just thought, "Mm, very proud of yourself, aren't you, Ben Chilwell? It's Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. Well... Uh, we're going to end the podcast now because we wandered into places unknown and had to cut out stuff that we said. 
so that's why it was jarring. But anyway, thanks to you, Seb Stafford Bloor. Thank you very much, Joe Devine. And to you, Alex Stewart. Thank you, Joe. Uh, we'll be back on Friday, back on Friday, with more game-relevant podcasting about whatever happens in this midweek. Au revoir! Athletic.